Uh, I'm Joe Simonet, and uh, I'm rooting for both the Patriots and the New York Giants tonight, so I can't lose. <laughs> so uh, I hate losing. So uh, uh, this morning, though, I'm rooting for Mark and, uh, and Luke because they're, uh, they wrote the passages about the temptation of Christ that uh, Ross is going to be delivering a message on this morning. So if you will, look in your Bibles, if you brought them, to Mark chapter 1, verse 9. And if you haven't, just listen up and I'll read it out for us all. Again, Mark chapter 1, verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was in the wild with animals and angels attending to him. And then over now in Luke, chapter 4, verse 1, Luke chapter 4, verse 1, again about the temptation. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Thank you, dear Lord, for giving us your word. It reveals who you are to us and brings us life. Amen. Thank you, Joe. Joe is on our elder board and also uh, coordinates the men's ministry. So if you want to know information about either one of those, he's the guy to talk to. We, uh, I'm so glad you're here with us today. It's great to see you. Yeah, and uh, we're in a series called uh, Real Jesus, and it basically is surrounding this premise. Most of us have very strong opinions of who Jesus is. We've grown up with him, we've seen him in the media, we've heard him in church. And for many of us, we've read the Gospels and we have a rather informed view of who he is, but for some of us, we haven't really read thoroughly even the Gospels. And so a lot of our strong opinions are based upon you know, what we hear and what we think. And even for those of us who have read the Gospels, I think the tendency of just human nature is that we tend to be attracted to those elements of who he is that are, we're most comfortable with, we're most attracted to, we like. But the problem is for us that if we have that kind of a Jesus instead of the real Jesus, uh, we can't find transformation in our life because a Jesus we make up can't confront us, can't, can't challenge us, can't 
speak to us and change our lives in a way. And so it's really important for, for many of you, I think even some of you have probably been in church maybe even a good portion of your life and at one point left church because you weren't finding the transformation in your life. It wasn't make, pardon me, making the difference that you really wanted in your life. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we don't have the real Jesus. So we're taking an in-depth look at the Gospels, the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' time here on earth to try to get a glimpse of who he is. Last week, we got a glimpse uh, into the very essence of who God is. And if you missed it last week, I'm sorry, for whatever reason, we had a technical glitch, so the recording didn't work, but normally we have the recordings up by Tuesday on uh, both our website and iTunes. You can subscribe to it on iTunes if you want as well, um, but that didn't happen last week. This week, we could summarize what we're going to look at today in a popular phrase, and that phrase is simply this, you can't really know a person until you've walked a mile in their shoes. And ladies, I'm sorry, I don't want to walk a mile in your shoes, the closest I'm ever going to come to relate to you is uh, Lama's class for our first son, and my wife insisted in her pain that I do a sympathy belly, and all the rest of the guys in the room were angry because then they had to do it because somebody did it. But that's about as close as I'm going to get to walking in your shoes. But today we get to walk in Jesus' shoes for 40 days through one of the most defining moments of his life. It's, it's a moment there. We've, we've talked about the fact that if you really want to know someone, you need to know some of the struggles they've been through and how they made choices in those times because those tell you more about the character, more about who the person is than just all the rest of the times in their life. And this is one of those times in Jesus' life. And, and it also speaks, it's going to speak to us today about our own journey through defining moments in our lives, through those moments of transition, through those moments of pressure, how we live to see our lives transformed. Last week, and we read it again today, we saw Jesus being baptized and coming out of the water. Uh, God says to him in an audible voice that the people around him heard, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And I think when I hear that, that is the definition of a high moment in life, isn't it? When you get that kind of affirmation that we really want, that sense of God affirming you, isn't that an amazing moment? And yet without skipping a beat, we just quickly go into this idea that the Spirit immediately took him into the wilderness, into this dry place, into this difficult place where he was tempted. And we kind of ask ourselves, what's up with that? I mean, God just affirms him, why don't we just get into the ministry stuff here? But reality is, I think all of us can relate to that. We've all experienced emotional highs. We've all experienced spiritual highs in our life. And then all of a sudden, a few days later or a few hours, hours later or a few weeks later, we're going, God, where are you? Or where is the feeling of love in my marriage that was here a week ago? What's going on? We have those same times where we go from this moment of high into this really dry place. Today we're dealing with the uh, temptations of Jesus, and, and I just got to ask the question, how many of you have been tempted this past week? Really, honestly tempted? Was it something that is habitual, that you struggle with on a regular basis? Maybe you were tempted with something new. How did you do this last week? Did you, did you succumb to the temptation? Did you resist? In this story today, in this account of Jesus, we get to see this Jesus being tempted immensely. 
We've already talked about in the incarnation of the first couple verses that we talked about a couple weeks ago, the fact that Jesus came to earth to identify with us. And today we get to see that he identified with us in every temptation we have ever faced fully and yet did not sin. And there's a truth that I think all of us need to really grasp deep in our heart out of that. And it's this. So many of us think that when we're tempted, we're actually sinning. Temptation does not equal sin. And yet, how many of you, when you go through an intense time of of temptation in your life and struggle, beat yourselves up and immediately get down on yourself and go, man, I'm so bad. Why am I going through this? And you get so hard on yourself and and you shame yourself. Or how many of you, when somebody else close to you is going through severe temptation, think, man, what's the problem with you? And see, Jesus is teaching us here by the fact that he was tempted and did not sin. And he was tempted intensely. The temptation does not equal sin. Sin is determined by what we do with the temptation. Do we ruminate on it? Do we own it? Do we fantasize about it? Do we act upon it? And it's then that it becomes sin. Before we even get out of the gate into the rest of the discussion today, I, I, I think some of you, as I even say that much, are probably thinking maybe this. If Jesus was tempted and didn't sin, then how can he truly truly have identified with us in temptation. I mean, after all, we've been smothered by it. We've been beaten up by it. We've lost that battle. How can he identify with the full weight of the temptation if he did not sin? And let me just use this illustration to, to answer that. How many of you like to lift weights? Well, no, no. How many of you do lift weights? Okay, you ever been to a gym and lift a weight? The guy who's lifting weights, who has the bar on his chest and can't budge it and is crushing his chest, does not know the full weight of the bar. The person who knows the full weight of the bar is the person who can lift it and put it safely back where it needs to be. You see, I don't know the full weight of a 500-pound barbell because I've never been able to budge it off the floor. Jesus faced the temptations that we have faced, faced them maybe even more intensely than we have faced them. And he was able to lift the full weight. Jesus knows the full weight of temptation better than we do who have been crushed by it. He was tempted for 40 days without food. We have a hard time going one day without being grumpy, right? We have a hard time going one meal without being grumpy. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane and the temptation and the the stress was so great, so intense that it burst the capillaries in his forehead and blood mixed with his sweat and dripped down. And still in the midst of that intense weight of temptation, he said, not my will, but yours, good, loving, heavenly Father, be done. Not this heavy temptation, but your will be done, Father. And that leads us to something that we talk about a lot, which is so central to our faith on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment basis. And yet it's one of those things that I think for some of you guys, especially when we talk about this, it comes across as weakness. And it's this idea of surrender. It's this idea of absolute surrender and obedience, giving up all of our rights to God. And we feel like, well, we're just giving up all of our power when we do that. You see, 
It's interesting because the weight of the bar God is inviting us to lift is far heavier than anything you've ever lifted. The challenge He's giving, it, giving to us to lift and live in is far greater. And, and He gives us His Spirit and wants us to be able to lift that with ease. He wants to teach us to lift that with ease. And yet, lifting that bar in our lives will come with far greater reward in your family, in your professional life, in all areas of life. It'll go beyond any record you've ever set in scoring in, in sports or any record you've ever set in scoring a sales deal or any record you've ever set in promotions. He wants to give us the ability to be much stronger than we are. And really, today's message, today's message is an invitation to courage, real courage, true courage, not the kind of couch potato courage that we're all going to enjoy this afternoon as Sunday afternoon quarterbacks in the NFL Super Bowl real courage. And you see, so many times when we see Jesus, when we even talk about some of the stuff that we're talking about today, we, we have these mental images in our minds because we've got all these paintings of what I'd like to call pretty boy Jesus. You know, he's got the perfect oil of Olay complexion, the perfect hair, everything's great. But if we really understand who Jesus was in real life, he was the strong, burly, sandpaper rough hands from hard work this guy who went 40 days without food, and then I always get a kick out of the text when it says this. It just kind of says, he went 40 days without food, and he was hungry. And it just goes beyond that. I want to say that with like an Arnold Schwarzenegger or you know, some sort of an accent, because it's like just kind of this flippant statement. 40 days, and really? Jesus is compelled by the Spirit to face the wilderness, to be tempted so he could completely identify with us and show us a way through it. And many of us, we want to be led by the Spirit. We even want to be compelled by the Spirit because we so desperately want the goodness that we know those promises of the Bible give us. We want to be led by the Spirit, but we're not so sure about this kind of leading. And we so easily go from our spiritual highs to the desert places and the temptation, and we question, where are you, God? What are you doing? Why this? I thought you said blessing, and why this difficult time? And trying to explain that tension and why temptation and why desert experiences happen like that is, is difficult. But let me, let me give you two pictures to try to explain a little bit of it possibly and help. Last week, we talked about the, the Trinity. We talked about the essence of God being this wonderful dance, this wonderful movement of self-giving relationship with absolute security and absolute sense of love and the ability to both give and receive love without strings attached and just this beautiful image. And we talked about the idea of movement being what the Spirit wants to bring us into and we used the illustration that the best way to de de define selfishness or self-centeredness is through a stationary object. It's just this object that sits there and expects everybody before it's going to do anything to come and meet its needs. Come and do something. I'm going to, I will give you this if you meet my need here. I will do this for you if you meet my need here. And it's really this stationary, everybody come to me type of a, type of a thing. Well, well, think about this. Think about, think about sin in our life. Sin is the stuff that destroys our life. It's, it could be compared in a sense to a landslide. We walk through life and it gradually, sometimes rapidly, just smothers us. It, it falls on us and smothers us like a landslide. 
And it forces us to be stationary. It forces us to say, it's about my needs now. I need to be healed before I can do anything. It's about me. Everything come to me. That's what sin is. Sin is stationary. And it crushes the life out of us. And if the Spirit comes to us and fills us and says, I want to heal you, the Spirit is all about movement. So can you imagine us as this stationary object being smothered by this landslide and the Spirit comes and says, move, and compels us to move. Well, what's going to happen? You're automatically going to rub up against stuff. It's automatically going to make you raw. It's automatically going to start saying, man, it's, it's more comfortable sometimes when we're smothered to just stay still, to stay stationary, to make it about us. And the Spirit comes to us and compels us to move, trying to rescue us from this smothering, but in the process, it's going to make us rub up against painful stuff dragging us through the dirt at times in order to free us. And we have this tendency when God does that sometimes to say, no, don't. And we just fall back into this stationary until you meet my needs, until this feels better, until this is easier, I'm not going to let you lead me or compel me. And temptation could also be likened to the image of fishing. And Satan loves to bait hooks all the time with stuff that we want, stuff that tastes good, even stuff that we're hungry for. But instead of, instead of freeing us, instead of filling us, instead of satisfying us, it leaves us hooked. Instead of giving us freedom, it, it damages us and it destroys us instead of healing us. Jesus, sinless, went into the wilderness to show us how to face the baited hook and not take it how to face the good, tasty things in our life that we need, the needs that are lacking in our life that need to be legitimately met and to lead us into true goodness instead of false goodness, instead of slavery and instead of disappointment, instead of death. Matthew and Luke both detail the temptation of Jesus. Mark just alludes to it and says he was tempted for 40 days, and it's very short. But So we're going to look at the Luke passage today a little bit. And in this, we're going to see that Jesus, in this time of temptation, is actually facing the very same question, if we wanted to look at it more, and I'll give you some scriptures this week and after the message to look at it more, the same question that Adam did. And it's really the, the core of at least two of these temptations is this. It's a, it's a question of identity whether God really does love us fully or is he hiding something from us? Is he just keeping something from us? Have you ever been there in your life when you're going through a difficult time, a dry time, and and you go, God, why don't you give me this answer? Why are you holding this from me? What's going on? Are you really good? I thought you said you were going to bless me. And we, we have those moments in our own life. And it's this identity challenge. God says to him, you are my beloved son in whom... I am well pleased. And then the devil comes to him and says, if you are the Son of God. If you are. Are you really the Son of God? Is God really pleased with you? And he speaks to us in the same way. He says, are you really forgiven? Has God really forgotten your past? Did he say that he was, did, it, did God say you were a son or are you, just, are you just kind of an adopted son? I mean, he says you're an adopted son, but does he really mean that he loves you? Does that mean that you're just really second rate? And he questions our identity consistently with us. Maybe you're like Jesus and, and you, you're, you're poor and you're struggling financially and you're lonely 
And he tempts you and says, are you really sure God loves you? Are you really his son? Mark Driscoll, one of my favorite preachers to listen to when I go work out and stuff, he uses this phrase a lot in a number of his messages. He, he says this short, pithy things. He says, identity determines biography. Identity determines biography. If you see yourself weak in conflict, you will be. If you see yourself as fearful, you will be. If you see yourself as a failure, you will be more often than not. And yet God says to you when you come to him and you accept him and you decide to follow him, he says, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. He's here to give you a new identity, to write a new biography in your life. An identity that is not, that is not based on your past failures. It's not based on your current failures because you can repent and those are forgiven and he does not see you that way even in your current state. But he sees you as he originally created you. Good, whole, a person created with a beautiful purpose that he wants to give you joy and fulfilling. And God is standing there saying, why are you still seeing yourself as a failure? Why are you still seeing yourself as the person who's always going to succumb to this temptation? Why are you seeing yourself as weak and incapable of resisting? Why are you seeing yourself as this person who is wounded? I am making you new. I created you. I love you. I justified you. So why are you allowing anybody to make an accusation against you? Because I've already said you are good enough for my love. You are good enough for me. How can anyone say different about you? Satan's temptations are his attempts to lie to us and accuse us of stuff that is not true or is no longer true. And the interesting thing is, for something to change us and affect our identity, it doesn't have to be true. We just simply have to believe it. And then that it's our identity. Our identity, whether it is the truth of God or the lie of Satan, determines our life story, our biography. And in Christ, you get a new identity that writes a new biography. The temptation goes on for Jesus and and it says, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now Jesus is fasting 40 days. He's hungry, right? I mean, I'm hungry after missing one meal. He's been not eaten for 40 days. He's hungry. And food is good. It's a needed thing. It's a legitimate need in our life. So the temptation is not about eating. Eating's not a sin. The temptation here that we all face is who are we going to trust? Who are we going to obey? Who are we going to worship as our sole source of provision? for every need we have. Are we going to trust Satan or God? Are we going to trust our own power, our own ability to provide, our own intelligence, our own hard work? Are we going to trust God in our life? And so much of life and so much of temptation is about the good things that we legitimately need, the needs that are unmet in us that are legitimate to have met, being twisted outside of worshiping God to worshiping ourselves or others' opinions or 
the accusation of Satan in our ears. You see, we need clothes, but we're tempted to go and spend on them because we need the approval of the next-door neighbor because we have to dress right, because we have to, we have to, we have to measure up, or we're, or we're tempted with food and drink, uh, to, and, and we go out and eat and drink to, to soothe our unmet needs, and, and we become uh, gluttonous and obese or alcoholics. We, we have a legitimate need for healthy sexual relations in our life, and, and within that, so often it gets twisted and, and driven to things that are not healthy to sexual, sexual addiction. How many of our temptations and sins, how many of your temptations and sins are driven by legitimate, unmet needs? And because we meet them wrongly, it leads to destruction in our marriages, in our health, in our friendships, in our employment, in our relationships. You see, Jesus responds to temptation to get legitimate need met by saying this, He says, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And he's quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. He's quoting Scripture. And in this weakened state, he's still got the presence of mind somehow, probably because he spent so much time studying and memorizing and making it part of himself. He's got the ability to look back to Scripture and quote Scripture as his weapon against temptation. He says, man shall not live by bread alone. He's quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. And the context there is this. The verse itself, the whole verse says, he humbled you. God humbled you, talking to the Israelites about their experience in the desert from Egypt coming to the promised land, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, God demands that we see him as our sole provider. He wants us to trust Him for provision, whatever the need is, whether it's finances, whether whether it's emotional, whether it's relational, whether it's spiritual, whether it's dream, hope, purpose. He wants us to trust Him for the fulfillment of promotions more than trusting our abilities or our boss or blaming the political system around us at our work, even when everything around us is telling us it can't happen. The Israelites were in the desert where there was not enough food for them. God intentionally, intentionally by His Spirit led them into a place where there was no option for provision other than Him. And He does that sometimes for us. And will we trust His goodness in those times? Jesus doesn't say, oh, it's been a tough day. It's been a tough 40 days. I'm going to go escape and play a little Xbox, and I'm going to watch the Buckeyes, and I'm going to, I'm going to have a couple beers and wash away my, my tension and my lack of needs being met. He instead, and it's not that Xbox and Buckeyes, God forbid, aren't bad to watch. I mean, it's okay to have those kinds of entertainment in our life. That's not the point, right? He engages the temptation instead, though, by turning towards the temptation, by turning towards God in that and engaging it with Scripture. Scripture that he's memorized. Scripture that he's meditated on. And that's one of the reasons why in some of the after the message stuff we'll give you every now and then visualizing the exercises because it's, it's one thing to have the, mem- have the stuff memorized. It's another thing to actually sit and visualize what would it look like for Jesus to love me as much as this passage tells me because by visualizing, by meditating, it touches a deeper place in us. It, teaches, it touches an emotional, spiritual place in us that makes it so real to us, far more than an intellectual thing we've passed a test on. But Satan, we see, doesn't give up. He doesn't go away. 
Why doesn't he go away? We often ask that question when we're facing temptation. We quote scripture and, and, and we often ask, why doesn't this temptation or why doesn't temptation cease? I thought this stuff was supposed to work. If we quote scripture, it's supposed to go away and it does work. But yet, sometimes Satan just doesn't go away and the temptation keeps going. And temptation does not equal sin. The next one, the devil led him up on a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be yours. You see, this is a temptation to power and wealth, and it reveals a much broader aspect for our lives. It reveals the fact that you know, we think we come to service on Sundays to worship. We think that we have our own quiet times to worship or Bible reading times or, or we think we put on music in our car to worship with. But, but the reality is of the truth, this temptation is passionate, is everything we do is worship. Every time we eat, we worship. Every time we pull the card out and buy something or pull cash out and buy something, if we're good Ramsey people, we only pull cash out, Right? Every time we speak, every time we drink, every time we do something, we are either doing it for or against God's good, God's good plan for our lives. We're either getting our needs met through him and finding his blessing in those areas or we're getting our needs met in inappropriate ways. And Satan, interestingly in this one, says, I will make you successful. I'll make you powerful. I'll give you all the pleasures you want. And, and he's not even asking Jesus to deny the Father. He's just trying to get Jesus to divide his loyalties. And to say, if you'll just worship me, I'll give you all this. You can probably worship God. But you just, just worship me. I'll, I'll, I'll give you this. And we live our lives like that sometimes. We love Jesus and we love sex. We love Jesus and we love pornography. We love Jesus and we love gambling or we love sitcoms or reality TV that we know that probably aren't things that would make goodness of God happen in our life. We love Jesus, and, but we love our exercise and we love our sports. We, we love Jesus and we, we love our big house and it's got to be decorated like, like all the home shows. We love... We love even Jesus, but, but we love being the bull detector. We love uncovering the real story, which in most instances for us is really not the real story because we're just going on perception. It's really just gossip. And we live our lives divided. And our goal is not to eat less of the bait. Our goal is to get the bait and the hook out of our mouth. Our goal is to repent whether I watch the Buckeyes ever again or not, whether it doesn't matter, I'm going to do what God wants. I'm going to get the needs met in the way God wants the needs to be met. Whether, whether I take God's rulership of, over my money or not, I'm, if, I, if I follow God's rulership of my money, then I'm not going to do the DC vacation if I can't afford to follow how he says I should use my money, how I should give. I'm not going to do the European vacation. I'm not going to do, if I have to live in a 2,000 square foot house instead of a 4,000 square foot house, it's more important that I obey God and I trust God than any of those things. You see, we worship regularly the wrong things. It's more important that I, that I worship God than I have designer clothes. I'd rather have designer clothes from a second-hand store. We worship on a regular basis. And what God is inviting us to is to say, I am content 
I am content. And I worship God with my money. I am content whether I have a nice glass of wine or whether I drink unfiltered water out of the tap. I am content working for God in a job, even if it's menial, even if it doesn't satisfy me, even if it doesn't work well, if it's not what I really want to do, I'm satisfied giving my best in that job as worship to God, whether it's a menial job or whether I'm running a big company, I'm afraid Obama or a hire are going to tax everything I own. I am content because God is enough for me and I worship only him. You see, if I find my identity, my love, my power, if you find your affirmation, your provision, any part of your identity and anything other than obedience to him and his purposes for your life, then you're not worshiping the right thing. And you're never going to find contentment because contentment is a worship issue. Contentment's only found when we're satisfied in complete surrender and trust of a God who says, I love you so deeply. I care about you so deeply. I have such good plans for you. And that we trust him, whether it's the good time or the desert in that time. Jesus recognizes that. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.13. It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Trust the Lord your God completely is what he's saying. Worship no other person, no other thing. But Satan still doesn't leave him alone. He goes on in the next temptation. The devil led him to the Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And what Satan's actually doing here is he's quoting scripture to Jesus. He's quoting Psalm 91, 11, and 12. And it's basically Satan saying, hey, Jesus, if you really are the Son of God, it, see, he's questioning his identity again. He's questioning who he is. He's questioning his authority. If you really are the Son of God, then take this verse that I'm quoting to you that says God will protect you and prove the verse true. Prove God true. Do this great act of faith. After all, God has told you you are this and he's going to bless you, so why don't you just take this opportunity to propel your career forward and get attention because it will bring glory to God in the process. And see, temptation often comes to us in this form of challenging us to something grand, something that feels like a big step of faith. Something that sounds in line with God's call on our life. Something that turns faith from the position of trusting him to lead and makes it something where we are leading and we're proving, testing, making the opportunity for God to fulfill his word to you rather than trusting him and his time. You see, we turn trust from a trust in God and obedience and faithfulness to this almost angry proving, this aggressive posture of, of career, career building or, or faith building and, or reputation building in the name of God and it couches in something that feels like faith because faith is active in trust, but it, it really is just this stationary self-centeredness saying, I'm here, God. You said you'd do this. Now, do it prove. It's my time, God. Prove yourself. And it really comes down to identity again for us. Underneath all of that, 
we find ourselves questioning our identity. Does God really love us? If he really loves us, then he would do this. So I'm going to stand here and ask him to do that rather than trusting him. And Jesus answered and said, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, quoting Deuteronomy in 6.16. And when we look at the psalm verse that Satan quoted to him, it also comes back to Jesus understanding the context of the Bible and the heart of the Bible and the heart of God. Because if we look at that verse in the context, it's not about us trying to take this leap of faith to prove God. It's The whole context is talking about if we rest in God, if we rest in the shadow of the Almighty, if we trust in Him, if we surrender to Him and trust His timing, trust, trust His goodness, trust His way, His path through this, then the promise is there that He will not allow our foot to be dashed against the stones. The Bible does not tell us to demand proof from God, but to serve Him faithfully. And His promises that He'll help in our time of need. And yet we find so many places around, even in Christian circles, the, the, quoting the Scripture and taking it out of context. And Cults quote Bible verses. False preachers quote Bible verses. But God isn't about appeasing your demands. God doesn't need to prove that He is God to you because He is. He doesn't need to prove his authority to you or appeal to your authority because he is the highest authority. He is. And God is determined to be worshipped as who he is. Not because he's this capricious God who demands that we come to him, but he's this God, as we've talked about the last few weeks before this, who wants us to worship because he knows it's the only way for us to enter the dance with him of mutually self-giving, non-self-centered experience of the beautiful love and joy he wants to give us. Then it goes on to say, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. It's an interesting, interesting phrase, interesting word. Left him till an opportunity, to opportune time. And, and I think what tanks many of us in regard to our, our, our walk with Christ, our desire to become like him, is the changes in seasons. The changes between these spiritual high moments in the desert and how we handle that. And, but, and from the desert to the ministry success and how we even handle the temptations within that ministry success. And we're seeing this invitation to trust God in every area. It may be hard. In fact, in Mark, we go back to the passage in Mark, it says this, he says, Jesus was with wild animals at the end of it. It says he was with wild animals and angels attended him. And Mark, you know, we'd look at that and we'd say, wild animals, why does he mention wild animals? I mean, that's, what's the purpose? Interesting, you know, what did he pet a little kitty out, in the, you know, that was wild or astray? What did he do, you know? But Mark is this writer who's just got such an economy of style. He's so brief, so concise. You have to ask the question, why did he say it? And, and the answer is simply, the answer is found in the fact that during the time Mark was writing this, the people he was writing it to were in the midst of a, a great persecution by the Roman emperor. They were being thrown to wild beasts in persecution. And Mark realizes they're not that much different than we are. The people back then, we, we can make them out to be these grand heroes, but these were people who were fearful. They were people who were struggling with, how can this be happening? How can my, how can my family have been thrown to the wild beasts and God be loving? And Mark is just bringing back to their attention that Jesus himself, 
who he invites us to follow him in the way he lived. He lived and was tempted. He, he lived in the wilderness and was with the wild beasts. He was with the wild beasts who, who whipped him, the, the, the religious leaders, and he was with the Romans who, who crucified him, and he faced the wild beasts to the end. And it's Mark's deliberate intention to encourage us that it's so easy for us to get tanked by the belief that if God is really so good that life is going to be really easy. And the fact of the matter is it's not. Getting unpiled from all that rubble of sin that's fallen all around us that still hits us not just from our own but from other people around us requires movement, requires friction, healing, requires change and difficulty and pain sometimes. And the reality is I think some of you today are probably in the middle of a huge battle of temptation right now. And the invitation is that God wants to meet you there. You see, Mark ties together the wild beasts to give him courage, and then he reminds them that when Jesus resisted, God sent his ministering angels to strengthen him and help him. And some of you are in a season where Satan has left you alone, awaiting a more opportune time. And I want to encourage you today not to waste that time, not to get comfortable, but to press into Scripture, which is Jesus' main weapon and to allow it not to just be in your head, but meditate, spend time reflecting on it. Let it touch you emotionally and spiritually in a way that it becomes who you are. And if the worship team can come, we're going to wrap here in a minute and have communion. But there's, there's four lessons to me that I want you to walk away with today. So much of temptation we face is simply this. We've already talked about it. We're just summarizing here. It's an attack upon your identity. Do you really believe that God has created you good and loves you. And despite the damage that sin has done in your life, that it's done in all of our life, and despite the brokenness, he wants to restore and release and heal that goodness in purpose, in love, in beauty. Do you really believe that? Your identity. And most of our temptations, too, are driven by legitimate unmet, unmet needs. We can easily look at the temptations and say, I shouldn't feel this way. I shouldn't do that. No, there are unmet needs there. God just wants you to meet them through him. And God wants you to trust him enough that when they're unmet, you'll just turn to him and say, I'm here. I trust you. Whenever you're ready to meet this, I trust you. I trust your goodness. Third application is, you need to get in the Bible. You need to memorize. You need to take time to meditate. Close your eyes and visualize what this passage would look like if you were there experiencing it or what this would mean to you if you pictured God coming to you in this good way and demonstrating his love to you in that way so that it really becomes a part of you. And we need to remember that Jesus is this compassionate, amazing God who has indeed experienced every temptation that we will ever, ever face. And he's a God who is not discouraged by your weakness. He's not discouraged even when you fall, even when you succumb. He's not discouraged because he understands where you're at. He's experienced it. And he's there saying, come, let's get up again. Let's keep going. Follow me. 
and I'll bring healing to your life. Following Christ is not for the faint of heart. God's Spirit intentionally takes us places where our strength is challenged and it's for good purpose, for a good plan for us. Are you ready for that kind of an adventure? Are you ready to face that next challenge? We're going to celebrate communion and it's really appropriate that it that it fell on this Sunday. We normally do it first Sunday of the month because at the core of communion is, is this one truth that frames everything we live in. It not only frames our decision of coming to Christ, but it, fra- it frames every second of every day. And it can be encapsulated in, re- in, in, in this one word, repentance. Our ability to turn to Him always, to trust His goodness, to trust His graciousness, to trust His kindness. When we fall, when we sin, to, to be able to admit that, to own it and trust it and receive the fact that He is forgiving us and loving us. You see, these symbols are, are more than just symbols. They're to remind us of the fact that Jesus came in flesh. He came to identify totally with us. He came as a God who knows your weakness and is sympathetic to your weakness because He lived as you did, facing everything. And he came to spill his blood for us to take our penalty and instead wash us, make us clean, heal us, and demonstrate that his very life blood is what he loves us with. So as you come today, I want you to remember that. And I want you to just thank and rejoice God for the fact that he is a God who knows all of our weaknesses. We've got, we're doing a little bit different. We've got the, we got the bread and uh, some of you may have come from traditions where this means you actually drink. We don't, we don't sip. I'm just a little too sanitary for that. Uh, so dip your bread. If you're even concerned that that's not sanitary enough, we provided some of these for you in case somebody is concerned about that. Would you just come? Would you celebrate the fact that God loves you, God cares for you, God identifies with you, and he is inviting you to himself today? Go ahead, uh, servers. Do we have some servers coming? And the other part of the invitation is we're going to have a couple people on the corners here. If you're facing a really strong place, and don't worry, nobody's going to be... We all face it. We all face strong temptation time periods in our lives. So if you're facing that, don't be embarrassed to get prayer. Don't be embarrassed. We all face it. I face it. You face it. Some of us are in a time of intensity. Some of us aren't. But I want to encourage you just to receive your communion and then just step up to someone and say, would you just please pray for me? Would you do that? Go ahead and come. Did you hear what that song said? Did you hear that last line? saying to us today, I will adore you. He wants us to worship him. He wants us to adore him. But what he's saying to us is, you are my kids in whom I find great pleasure. I adore you. He's saying back to us. Can you live in that identity this week? Can you walk away from that this week and face whatever you're facing, the hard times, the frustrating times, the the difficult people at work, who make you feel like scum and just say, that's not who I am. Because this is how God treats me. Um, I want to invite you, if you want more prayer, to come on down for prayer. And I want to invite you to go fill yourself up on pancakes and 
Have a great week celebrating God's view of who you are, which is how outrageously wonderful. God bless.